having a relationship with the plant makes you a better dispensary owner and it gives you more insight and knowledge to the customer that you're serving and the product that you're offering. So that's all. It really just comes down to that. Welcome to the KayaCast, the podcast for cannabis businesses looking to launch, grow, and scale their operations. Each week, we bring you interviews with industry experts and successful retailers, plus practical tips and strategies to help you succeed in the fast-growing cannabis industry. In every single industry, there are names that are just synonymous with quality, with trailblazing, with with innovation. When you think of the computer industry and the, the birthplace of personal computers, obviously, you think of Bill Gates, and you think of Steve Jobs. When you think of electric vehicles, you think of those trailblazers like Elon Musk who have really made such an impact on the industry that they're synonymous with whatever industry they're working in. Today, I have an interview with one of the trailblazers of the cannabis industry. Andrew D'Angelo and his brother Steve have been a part of the cannabis industries for the past 35 years. They've been pivotal in really shaping what we have today. They brought in some of the industry first through their dispensary that they built in Oakland, California called Harborside. They work to reverse the negative effects of the war on drugs, especially with black and brown communities through their work with The Last Prisoner Project. And Andrew has taken his wealth of experience and knowledge and has created a consulting company that helps cannabis retail businesses really zag instead of zig. And he dives into that and explains that in our conversation and how your business can stand out and be unique. And, you know, this conversation was so amazing. I am so grateful for the opportunity to speak to someone who has been doing this for so long and just has such a breadth of knowledge. Because the conversation went uh, so well, we're actually going to break this interview up into two parts. The first part, we're going to focus on Andrew's experience in kind of shaping cannabis culture as it is today. He talks about growing up in Washington, D.C. and taking trips to California and really how he got started from his brother, the influence of his brother, Steve. So we talk about cannabis culture and what that really means for the industry and and where things have grown and where we've come from. And then we dive into the origins of Harborside, the dispensary that has become the largest vertically integrated cannabis company in California. And he talks through, you know, the challenges they went through in building this company and and building what they have today and where he feels most proud of the things he's done. During the second part of the interview, we're going to talk about his work in creating the last prisoner project with Steve, his brother, and how they're really working to promote social justice and criminal justice reform when it comes to drug policy and cannabis charges. They help to bring people out of prison, get them back and restore their life that was stolen through this cannabis crime. And then he goes from there to talk about his consulting company and how companies can grow, how dispensaries can really stand out and be unique in the industry. And so we're just going to dive right into this first part. And then we're going to encourage you to stick around for the second part, because really 
it's it's so amazing to hear all of his stories and all of his experience. So let's jump right into the show. Andrew D'Angelo is a visionary leader with a proven track record of enacting systematic social change and developing best practices in cannabis. Andrew lends his vast cannabis business and political expertise as a consultant for hire to the global cannabis community at large, including several strategic partnerships with the world's leading cannabis-centric service firms. Over two decades as an activist, Andrew worked on a variety of voter initiatives which legalized medical and adult-use cannabis in San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and the state of California. As a co-founder of Harborside, Andrew has pioneered legal cannabis business processes and provided groundbreaking political engagement and thought leadership to the cannabis community, leading the design and development of gold-standard cannabis retail by innovating many firsts for the industry. This includes introducing CBD medicine to heal severely epileptic children, implementing the first lab testing program in the history of cannabis dispensing, creating child-resistant packaging for edibles, standardizing inventory tracking, initiating senior outreach, and successfully preventing the federal government from seizing Harborside in actions against the company in 2012. Andrew began his political career as an activist while studying for his MFA in acting at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. He starred in several films and runs an entertainment production company, D'Angelo Brothers Productions, with his brother Steve. Andrew is the co-founder and chairperson of the board for the nonprofit Last Prisoner Project and a founding board of directors member of the California Cannabis Industry Association, where he served from 2013 to 2020. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've got quite a quite a history, and we're going to dive right into it. But hey, it's great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoy talking about cannabis retail, so I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, man. Well, and and where are you where are you calling in from today? I'm in my home office in Oakland, California. I love Oakland. It's a great little progressive town. Of course, we have lots of problems here, like any town does, but. I've, you know, Harborside started in Oakland. It's very close to my heart. Is that where you grew up in Oakland, California? No, my brother and I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. Our dad worked for the federal government for many years, and he also worked for Amtrak. So both of those are live in Washington, D.C. So that's where we grew up. I'm one of these people. I did not like the place I grew up. I loved my family, of course, and I, I, had a lot of good experiences in the Washington, D.C. area, but I didn't really like living there. And I, when I was a little kid, my dad, for a year, got a job in California when I was like 10 or 11 years old, and I got to visit him. And there was just something in the air in California that made me feel like anything was possible and that there were a lot of people more like me there than people in Washington, D.C., and yeah, you know, I was adventurous and I wanted to, you know, see different things in the world and be in a different place and certainly get away from the harsh winters. And so, you know, looking at your background is where did you get your start in cannabis? Like, was that in California going out there or what? what's kind of your background and how'd you get started in this? Well, my older brother, Steve, turned me on to cannabis. He's 10 years older than me, older brothers and cousins and are oftentimes our guides to to cannabis so that that's how it was for me and i was 
I was an athlete as a high school student and, and then I got hurt and I was in a lot of physical and spiritual, emotional pain because I, I thought I was going to be a professional athlete. That dream was quickly destroyed by an injury. And, you know, I was so miserable. My brother handed me a joint one day in, in my mom's kitchen and said, you might want to try this finally, because he had been trying to turn me on weed for a while. Then I took that cannabis and pretty much immediately changed my life. You know, I, I realized, oh, wow, my brother's right. I'm feeling so much better physically. I'm not depressed anymore. I'm starting to think about new things I can do that are exciting to me, new dreams I can dream. And I don't think I would have been able to pull myself out of that darkness that I was experiencing at that time without the help of the medicine. So, and my older brother was already heavily involved as an activist and uh, a cannabis trader at that time. And so I just kind of joined the family business and have not looked back ever since. <laughs> now, have you seen, you know, from, from back in the day, how has the kind of the cannabis culture changed over the last 35 years? Like, you know, you've been in it, you've been an activist as well alongside your brother. Like you must have seen massive changes in the culture itself. You know, when I was in high schools in the 1980s, early 1980s, I graduated in 1985. It was very underground. I mean, you could not even wear a weed leaf on your shirt or your backpack or anything at school. They'd send you home. They'd suspend you, if not expel you. And they would certainly search your bag and your locker if you had just like a pin of a weed leaf. Well, now everybody walks around with weed leaves all over the place, right? It's in your medicine cabinet. It's on your clothing. This I'm wearing, this is 100% hemp I'm wearing right now. Doesn't have a weed leaf, but it's made out of weed. We were deeply underground. It was a really risky thing to be a stoner. You were ostracized from everything, not just mainstream society, but like the only kids that I could relate to in high school were the theater kids. So I, that's how I got into acting in theater was because I became a stoner in high school and all the jocks were like against me. <laughs> I was like, hey, man, just try this. <laughs> and they're like, what? You're crazy, man. I'm going to call the cops on you. And so I became friends with all the kids in the theater. And that's sort of the group that I, in my last year or two in high school, I, I went from being a jock <laughs> to trying to be an actor and an artist, but really just kind of finding myself as a stoner and trying to find those people that we could hide and smoke with, right? You had to hide and smoke. We'd go out into the woods and, and smoke weed together. And that's how we did it. And then when we emerged from the underground, we had our codes, right? To kind of wink at each other a little bit and say, hey, I'm a stoner. You're a stoner. So it was deeply underground. It was really risky. A lot of stigma. And, you know, you couldn't go into your job and talk positively about cannabis. You would lose your job. Like I was a young actor and I was pretty loud and proud about what I was doing with weed. And I thought, you know, the theater would be a safe space for me, but it really hurt my career, you know, as an actor, because the people who signed the paychecks didn't trust I could do it. Right. Um, didn't trust I would know my lines or show up on time or all those other stereotypes. And it's changed so much now, you know, most everybody is a supporter in the United States. Almost everybody, huge majority of people support cannabis. We've built a lot of momentum in the last, since 2012, really last 10 years. We have our shops and we have our patients and our customers and we have display cases and beautiful facilities. 
You've got celebrities like Woody Harrelson owning and operating dispensaries now. Never would have happened even five years ago. You know, those of us who know Woody have been banging on his door for decades trying to get him to do something like that. And now he felt safe enough to do it, right? He's Woody Harrelson's a guy that's got a lot to lose. So, you know, he wanted to be careful about how he did things. And so, but now he owns and operates the woods in West Hollywood. Beautiful dispensary, beautiful consumption lounge. And we're really coming out of the shadows into the light. Well, and even, I know you were at MJ BizCon. There's 35,000 people that have made this their business, their goal, their career. And it feels like a party. Like it feels so normal. And there's so many different aspects of the business. But there's still a long ways. Like, what are some ways that we can, you know, kind of help people to normalize? Because I, I, I still think there is that stigma that's hanging in the air whenever you, whenever, whenever you say, "Oh yeah, I work in cannabis." Like, what can we do to normalize that even more? Well, we just got to keep doing what we've been doing. The issue is we've got a hundred years of prohibition, propaganda, stigma, stereotyping racial aspects thrown in there too, locking up all the black and brown people doing war against these communities. And those communities got hurt a lot. And and yeah, there are a lot of people in those communities that also have stigma because the grandmothers and the preachers and the and and the wives and the kids did not like seeing their brothers and, and husbands and fathers go to prison, right? And they did go to prison. And so that, that community became divided and, and, and has a lot of stigma in it too. We have to show up. We have to do a good job. We have to be transparent. We have to show that we are responsible members of the community. We have to tell the stories of the patients and the kids with epilepsy and put the right people in front of the camera. Name a celebrity. They probably have a cannabis brand. Name an athlete or ex-athlete. They probably have a cannabis brand. Well, that's, that's pretty mainstream. Right. We just got to keep doing what we're doing. I, I, you know, the polling's pretty clear. 90% support medical. I think it's almost 70% support adult use. The only people who don't believe in this are the people who make the laws and the politicians that, uh, you know, somehow they still are stigmatized to the point that they actually believe that it will hurt them to embrace cannabis even though they're seeing the same polling that all of us are seeing it's like this prohibition is in the muscle memory you know of society and 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 politicians and law enforcement and people in positions of power have that muscle memory even more than perhaps the populace does and clearly they do (laughs) or else we have this over the finish line by now coming out of the closet is really the most powerful thing that any of us can do because Once you have a cousin or an aunt or an uncle or a grandmother or a grandchild that's benefiting from the medicine or cannabis or is in the industry or is working in the industry or has a good job in the industry, that's how you lower the stigma, right? You tell those stories around the Thanksgiving dinner table. You tell that stories when you're visiting with each other. So I think, you know, it's an an opportunity for us to experience unity together is is with bringing cannabis even further into the light the kaya cast is brought to you by kaya push the cannabis industry's go-to software for simplifying people management streamline your hr payroll compliance and employee management with kaya push 
Well, you've been on the cutting edge of policy, and we'll get into that with the Last Prisoner Project because everybody that I talk to, businesses, everyone, I ask them, you know, what nonprofits do you support? And they always say, Last Prisoner, we're partners with them. Like, so it's always so good to hear about that. But I want to go into Harborside. So Harborside is a, a dispensary that you started with your brother, Steve. So how did you create that? And where did you, where did that idea come from? My brother and I have been wanting to get legal our whole lives. And so the dream for having a shop that you can sell cannabis in was one that we'd harbored for a long time since really that first joint I smoked with him in my mom's kitchen. After that joint was done, we went upstairs and smoked a whole bunch more joints and started talking about this, you know, what is the dream? Eventually, after decades and decades of work, the opportunity came for us to apply for this license. The very first license regimen for retail cannabis happened under the medical program in California in the city of Oakland. It took them about a year to get the application rules and everything together. And so we applied and, and we found a building with a landlord. There's only two buildings in the whole town at that time that had a landlord that'd be willing to rent to us that was also in the zoning that the city had designated for a dispensary. And we got the license and we sold my mom's house on the East Coast, moved her out here with us. And on October 3rd, 2006, we launched and we opened. It was also... <laughs> Interestingly enough, on that same day, the DEA was raiding a dispensary in Hayward, California, which is the town just south of Oakland, on the highway just south of Oakland. And we, you know, we had a meeting before we opened saying, the DEA is raiding them. Are they going to raid us? Do you guys still want to open today? And everyone was like, yeah, let's open. And so we did. And by the grace of God, we didn't get busted that day. Obviously, you were uniquely positioned being in Oakland. You grew to be the largest vertically integrated cannabis company in California. Like, what was that growth like? And I mean, you even were featured on a docuseries, right, for Discovery Channel. Like, what went from, you know, that initial selling your mom's house to growing to this massive company that you guys built? My brother knew that Harborside Oakland was going to be pretty big. And we had been in the California market for a few years at that point, growing and making hash and selling to the dispensaries. So we, we kind of learned everything that was wrong with dispensaries. And we figured if we took all those lessons and solved all those problems for people with our business model, we might be able to attract a whole bunch of people. The other thing we did was we created a community nonprofit kind of center so that people could come and do different things, not just get cannabis. You could take a free yoga class. You could be in a support group if you were a veteran. You could write a letter to a prisoner or write a letter to a politician and get free weed in exchange. If you were poor and you were, you know, on unemployment or a section nine housing, you could get a free gram and a half of weed every week from us. So all those things really allowed us to plant roots very widely in the community and the community knew that we cared about them. We showed that if you bring something into a a tough neighborhood that people want that will become a destination, then you can certainly revitalize the neighborhood with things that serve the neighborhood. And that's kind of what's happened down there in Oakland where we are. And the same thing happens 
all over this country because most municipalities zone cannabis dispensaries in really hard industrial areas or not so good neighborhoods. They often are filled with homeless people, tent cities, things like that. Because the politicians, that's safe for them, right? They're not going to have somebody get up at a council meeting and say, my child walked by a dispensary and it was terrible. If you're down underneath the highway and there's nothing there but warehouses and there's a dispensary sitting there amongst all the warehouses, that's probably not going to happen, right? One of the great things about cannabis retail that's happened all across the country, I'm doing it right now with my clients in Ohio and other places, is we're revitalizing these communities. And we are revitalizing these neighborhoods and we're bringing life back into them. And that's something we don't get a lot of credit for or if any, if any credit for, but our industry is doing that. Our industry does not have a great reputation with the public, but this is one thing that folks should know about, right? We are revitalizing these neighborhoods. You go into these areas now and you see what's happened and you'll be blown away because it really is economic revitalization at work. Well, and there's so much security and like, like you're saying, revitalizing neighborhoods because you go into a dispensary and it's not like walking into like some drug dealer's house. It's like walking into this beautiful like Apple store or like these experiences that these architects, I've talked to so many architects and, you know, Mike Wilson from Temeca Group that's building these amazing experiences that people are walking into so that comes into a town and then or an area and it really can have that process of revitalization you know running harborside what were the biggest challenges that you guys kept on hitting hitting the same wall well the government's always your biggest challenge right but putting that aside whenever a business grows as fast as harborside did you have to hire a lot of people very quickly you have to train them very quickly you have to try to keep the, the, the magic that attracted that growth in the first place going. And it's extremely hard to do. In the early days of Harborside, we didn't get our second shop until I think two years into our, our first shop. We went from, I don't know, 20, 40, 50 people a day to over a thousand. And that is tremendous. And so it's a real challenge to keep up with and to make sure the experience is as good or better than it always was and to make sure the weed that you're selling. One of the things that people loved about Harborside in the beginning was we had a giant selection of products. We knew we had to compete with the underground market and that was very hard. One way we could do that was having a very wide selection of products. And we trained our staff on all of them. And even in those early days, if you worked for Harborside at the end of the year shift, you'd get a free gram of weed. And that was designed to get people to know the inventory. You could not take the same gram of weed every time. You had to take a different gram of weed. But it was something we tried to do to get people closer to the inventory. You know, I did a tweet the other day where I said, I think it's important that people who work in our industry consume the product or have some kind of relationship to the product, man. Even if it's just rub it on your sore elbow, I don't care. But you have to, in my opinion, you're going to be better and more successful in this industry if you have a relationship with the product. Woo, man. A lot of people feel much differently about that. <laughs> and then there are some people who simply can't consume cannabis. They're allergic to it. They have some kind of reaction to it. And, you know my feed just blew up when I posted that. 
And, you know, there's exceptions to every rule and, and, and there are human beings. I guess there are people that can become sommeliers who don't drink wine or I guess there are swimming teachers who can teach people to swim if they don't know how to swim themselves. I mean, I guess that exists out there in the world. But do you want to learn how to swim from somebody who doesn't know how to swim? Or do you want to buy a bottle of wine from a sommelier who doesn't drink wine? I mean, you've got to have those experiences, positive and negative, especially a dispensary owner who's not using their own product. How can they have any sort of insight into, yeah, this is the best weed you need for this? I think it's really hard to do. I mean, some folks just look at it as another widget. And so we'll... I'm really good at selling widgets. It's just another widget. So I'll move from selling these widgets over here to selling this widget. And, you know, there are some very smart people who perhaps can do that. My personal opinion <laughs> um, is that having a relationship with the plant makes you a better dispensary owner and it gives you more insight and knowledge to the customer that you're serving and the product that you're offering. So that's all. It really just comes down to that. Looking back again at Harborside, what are you most proud of? Like you had all of these industry first, like we went through that list, but what's the thing that stands out as like, oh, that was the best there? Well, the two things that stand out the most to me is just we helped a lot of people. And when, when someone comes up to you that you don't know, you know, you're walking through the floor of your dispensary and you're just walking through the floor. You're going to your office. You're going into the back. You're you're doing something. If you run a dispensary or a series of dispensaries like I do, you basically live there, right? You're spending 60 to 100 hours a week at the dispensary. So you walk through the dispensary a lot and someone will stop you and they'll say, Mr. D'Angelo, I got to tell you something. I'll stop and of course, always stop and talk to a customer or a patient, of course. So, and they'll say, thank you for saving my life. Or thank you for saving my wife's life. Or thank you for providing something so accessible to us that we were able to help our kid or help ourselves. And when someone tells you that, for me anyway, that's the best of the best. Because you know that you had an impact, right? The other place we have a lot of impact as dispensary owners is not just with the community that we serve, but there's two other important stakeholders. There's the supply chain vendors that are coming, very important relationships there that, that are super critical. And when you have, it's another area that can be very gratifying. When you have the best supply chain in town and the best products in town and you know it, and people are telling you that, it's extremely gratifying. And your vendors will also feel that and understand that because they'll be selling their products faster. So that's another important group that I found is very gratifying to be in relationship with. And then the staff, you know, I've got people that worked for me that are running cannabis companies now that own and operate their own cannabis companies now that are out there in the world being leaders and thought leaders and speakers in our industry. And it's extremely gratifying to know that the time that those employees and staff and managers and leaders and directors and 
all of them spent at Harborside, helped them in their career, made them, in some cases, made their career. Um, in other cases, just gave them more skills or more opportunity. Most of the people that work for Harborside, especially in the early days, they're, they're, these are not college graduates. These are not people from Ivy League schools. These are not people with pedigree that you're seeing in the industry nowadays, right? Where, you know, all the big companies are run by people from Harvard and Yale and big business schools and blah, blah, blah. But most of the people actually work, actually do the work. They're either in college trying to get their degree or they don't have a degree. And they're working, they're working class people. And when those folks get opportunity to move up into management and into leadership, like I have a situation right now in Ohio where we had someone apply for a job as a manager for, for this dispensaries that we're building. We got to open them up soon. And they were working for a big MSO in the same market in Ohio, and they couldn't move up because the MSO had a rule that said you had to have a bachelor degree to get into management. Well, <laughs> you know what you need to get into management? You need to be a good manager. That's what you need to get into good into management. And you need to show that you can you can you at least have the potential to be a good manager. And if you show that potential, you ought to be given a shot. And so that's what we provided at Harborside. We didn't have rules like that, right? Certainly someone who might have a degree might compete for the job in a different way than someone who doesn't, but the person who doesn't oftentimes got the job with us uh, because of one reason or another. So seeing folks get opportunities that they never would have gotten because they were working for you instead of somebody else is extremely gratifying. And to see people who work for you go out into the world and make big things happen and get epic stuff done so gratifying, you know, so gratifying. It's like I, I'll see work that people use for work for us do right now. You know, there's a guy who worked for us. He owns this little company called Oakland Extracts. And like, I really enjoy smoking his extracts. And he's killing it, you know. Is he, is he the biggest thing in the world right now? No. Is he struggling just like everyone else in California is right now? Absolutely. But he's doing it, right? And this is a person of color. And, you know, sometimes we'll run into each other and he'll almost always say, if it wasn't for Harborside, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. So that's super gratifying. And so those are the three things, right? The customers, the suppliers, and your staff. That's where you're going to get your gratitude from. And if you do well, I, I, I'd like to tell your listeners that you'll get a lot of gratitude with all the money that you're stacking right now. But cannabis retail isn't about making money right now because you're essentially working for the IRS until Code 280E goes away. It has to be about other things or something else. If you're lucky enough to have the resources to have more than one dispensary, you may be able to put you know, you, the overall enterprise might be worth quite a bit, but the individual units probably are struggling or probably are just getting by or probably are sending most of their money to the tax authorities that is left over, right? Or investors between the tax man and the investors. 
not a lot left right now for owners and operators of dispensaries until we change 280E, until some of the regulatory and tax burdens that we're all carrying right now get lighter. The impact that you can have, that must be so rewarding looking back over that and and running into those people years later and they're like, man, Harborside really pushed me in this career when they were just like, you know, a, a college student that was just kind of not sure what they wanted to do. And then they get, were given this path and these careers didn't exist, you know, 20 years ago when I was in school, like now they do. And now there is this path for people that are passionate about cannabis. So it's, it must be so cool to see having that legacy, being able to look back at that. Oh, it's great. I mean, I, I'm very blessed, you know, to be in this stage of my career because when you get to be 50 in your 50s like me, there's a your resume is going to be long. The stuff that you've done in your life is going to be long even if you spent 5 years on fish tour. <laughs> you'll still have a whole lot of stuff you've gotten done, including those five years on fish tour. They're, they're not invaluable. That's one of the great things about middle age is, is you get to look back and say, wow, look at all the stuff I did in my life. And, and in many ways, you feel like you're just getting started because you get the hang of it, right? Once you get, you know, 20 years or more into your career life, you know, and you get into your 40s and 50s, you just, you've seen the situation so many times. You've dealt with all kinds of different people at that point. You've learned how to do that. You've learned what you're good at and what you're not good at. You've learned what you love to do and what you don't love to do. You've learned when you need help and when you don't need help. And so it makes navigating career and life more easy and enjoyable because, um, you know, you've played the video game a lot. So... It's a great time. The bummer about this time in life is, is your body starts to <laughs> do things. That, um, you know, I had this like rotator cuff injury this year and I was like, God, how, what the heck's going on? But it's a great time to be in, 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 in life. And so, you know, when Harborside finished and we, I started, you know, we exited Harborside. That's a whole nother story in of itself. But the next project I worked on after that was Last Prisoner Project. And every time you start an organization after you finished one, the next one's a lot better because you 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 take what you learned as an entrepreneur or as a you know last prisoner project's a nonprofit, it's not a, a business, but you learn and you apply those lessons to the next thing and the next thing usually is better because of that. Um, also, you know more people, and so you get them involved in the next thing. People you know that can deliver the goods, right? And so, and so, th that's also a really nice part of being in, in this stage of my career is I, I have the knowledge and the experience and the confidence really to know that okay, this next thing I'm going to do is going to work. So stick around for the next episode of the KayaCast podcast, my interview with Andrew D'Angelo, as we dive into The Last Prisoner Project and his work as a consultant and really these golden nuggets of advice of how cannabis companies can really stand out in the market. So stay tuned for the next episode 
and we'll see you back then. Thanks for listening to the KayaCast podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast in your favorite podcast app or visit our website to learn more about our guests and to access the full archive of episodes from the show. Join us next time as we continue to explore the world of cannabis and help you grow, launch, and scale your business.